0: BLOB TALK RADIO And good evening everybody and thank you for joining us. The day is Monday, February 10th, 2014. Tonight we're joined with a very special guest. He is a defense attorney out of Phoenix. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Jason Lamb. Good evening, Jason welcome to King Jordan Radio. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Okay, Jason, uh, since this is your debut, why don't you tell us uh, and the listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, I practice criminal defense,
1: and not just criminal defense. I do complex cases. Uh, I'm in Phoenix. Um, I've been doing that since about 2001. Uh, I'm a former felony prosecutor, major felony prosecutor, and because, of course, we're going to be talking about Woody Allen, uh, I think huh. it bears mention that I prosecuted sex crimes. Um, I've defended a lot of sex crimes. And, of course, I do a lot of commentary uh, on legal issues uh, for HLN, a lot last year for Jodi Arias, uh, matters like Ariel Castro. Okay. And uh, if you hear a big mouth on the air uh, spewing things that are getting people a little fired up, probably because I'm speaking the truth about things they don't want to hear, that's probably <laughs> me.
0: Now, you said you uh, did, uh did sex crimes. Now, did you ever defend people that were the accused? Of course,
1: of course. A substantial amount of my practice is defending people uh, charged or even accused of sex crimes. And I think it's an important distinction we need to make right off the bat. There are accusations made every single day, the majority of which don't have merit. Just think about it. Within the family courts, the custody battles that go on throughout the country on a daily basis, it's probably the most damaging accusation or allegation that a parent can make about the other, that they inappropriately touch the child. And it happens all the time. So I've defended a lot of people at all different realms, uh, and I fully comprehend the gravity and the significance of it. But at the same time, I also comprehend that where there's smoke, there's not always fire.
0: Okay, with that in mind, I want you to take a listen to Jim Clemente. He is a former FBI for the New York State, and he also was a so-called victim. Let's take a listen to his take, and we'll come back on the other side, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk about it.
2: But my question is, there was a lack of, is what was said by the New Haven Medical Clinic, was there a lack of physical evidence to confirm allegations of sexual abuse. So therefore, can we conclude that the abuse didn't occur?
3: Well, no, absolutely not. Uh, just the lack of physical findings on a child is very common, extremely common in these cases. and it's the sophistication of the offender. I mean, if the offender is really dumb, they sometimes do things that leave marks, but those that groom children and have a long-term relationship with that child typically don't do things that would actually leave physical evidence because they know it's harder to prove the case. But you said something else about it. In custody battles, yes, people say, and and there actually is a, a case to be made for the fact that during custody battles, it is probably the most likely time that you could have coached children. But the research is that that coaching typically doesn't work after the age of five. In other words, the victims that we do see that are actually coached and lie about being victimized are under the age of five or five years and under. And Dylan was seven at the time that this occurred. She also said in her statement very clearly that this had gone on for a long time before she turned seven, that she actually spoke about it at seven because things had changed. It went much further this time
2: hmm Well, uh, you know, I mean, in that, the problem here is that when you have divorce or custody disputes, it's almost become de rigueur for somebody to bring up sexual molestation, that Ooh. one parent or the other parent will accuse, each, they will accuse each other of some sort of sexual molestation. In fact, criminal allegations during custody disputes are almost commonplace yeah. at this point,
3: and 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 it's really wrong to say that their thorough investigation concluded there was no sexual victimization. The thorough investigation, there's two parts of it. There was a, there was a panel apparently of doctors who apparently repeatedly interviewed this child, which is totally against the protocols that we have in place today, because you get in, interviewed the child one time thoroughly with a number of people being able to observe that and videotape that so everybody can scrutinize that later but instead she was subjected to repeated question over and over and over again and there certainly was some discrepancies in what she said which is normally what we see in actual child victims but on top of that the prosecutor actually found that there was probable cause to make an arrest of woody allen in that case however he said based on the fragility of the victim and with the mother's consent he decided not to press charges to actually arrest woody allen so it's it's a fraud It's a false statement, I mean, to say that the the investigation determined that there was no sexual molestation. It's just, as in these kinds of cases, it's very difficult to go forward. It can be very trying, very traumatic to the victim. So sometimes... They just don't prosecute them. Well,
2: I have a problem with hanging somebody on something that never happened. Right,
3: but what we have here is I mean, the something idea different. that we
2: could have prosecuted, but we decided not to prosecute. All I'm
3: saying is don't use that as an excuse to say it didn't happen. And then what I'm saying is here we have the benefit of 20 years, time has passed. Now the victim is an adult. She can articulate so much better what happened to her, what she went through and the resultant effects and i think all that is found in this very very detailed statement that she published and i think if you go through it line by line you'll see unique sensory details a dim closet like attic on the second floor he he made me watch look at his play with my brother's trains He talked to me. He spoke to me while he was doing it. He promised me things. He says it was our secret. These are all incredibly common details that we find in truthful statements from victims. And the fact that she waited 20 years from the time of victimization to actually publicly publicly make a statement like this is also right in line with all the research in this area. If you look at the John Jay College study on the Catholic Church priest abuse cases, the average time that it took for someone to come forward was 20 years. And the next bulkiest group of people happened between 20 and 30 years after the victimization. This is absolutely right in line with what we would expect if she were an actual victim.
0: Jason Lamb, I want to get your take on uh, Jim Clemente's take on the whole Woody Allen situation. Yeah, let me ask you a question. Having listened to that, was
1: Jim Clemente a former agent with the uh, FBI, or was he with the KGB? I really can't tell. You? (laughs) Let let, let me let me tell you something. Okay, as I listened to him, he says, "Well, we can't say that it didn't occur." Well, welcome to the United States of America. We have this (laughs) thing called proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Can we say that the abuse did happen? And Clemente's very quick to point out, well, the police thought there was probable cause. Well, see, that's the difference here when you're an investigator versus a lawyer or a judge. And the thing is, just because a police officer may think that there's some evidence, that doesn't mean that a prosecutor believes that there's sufficient evidence to go forward with the case or that a a judge uh, in a preliminary hearing or a grand jury uh, will find the same it's one thing to try Woody Allen or anyone accused in this country of a crime in the court of public opinion. It's a whole other thing to try them in a court of law.
0: No, I definitely have to agree with you. But uh, what is your the Or the court of public opinion? Yes, yes. Now, as you look back to, uh, from afar, do you see Woody Allen as a pedophile? You know, I don't know enough
1: about him. I know that allegations were made. But an allegation is only one aspect of an investigation. I do agree with Jim Clemente that physical evidence is rare. Now, I think um, now versus 20-some years ago, I think DNA is a lot more prevalent. It's it's possible. Uh, There could be witnesses. There could be other evidence. Um, There's something now, uh, you know, to be said for an admission or a confession, statements that Woody Allen may have made to the police or, or to third parties, what it comes down to is that an allegation is not enough, and, and it's, it's one of the most damning things uh, to say about a human being, that they uh, sexually offended against a child. Um, it's vile. Yes. But I don't think that that allegation is enough to give you or I or anyone else license to, to condemn him based
0: on that evidence alone. There's a lot of questions there. Yeah, there definitely is. And uh, usually, though, with pedophiles, isn't there a pattern? It wouldn't be one person. It would be almost they compare it to a heroin addict where the abuser cannot stop. Now, if he was an abuser, and I might sound like I'm defending him, uh, wouldn't there be like you know hundreds of victims, so-called? You know, coming out of, out of the uh, closet. Typically, you're right that there's there's a pattern.
1: Um, I don't know that he would be so prolific to have hundreds of victims, but it normally just doesn't stop. It's not normally an isolated occurrence. Now, a lot of people are very critical of his marriage to his stepdaughter Soon Yi. But I think right. a really important distinction that we need to make is that she was uh, sexually developed, an adult, if you would, uh, when they first had whatever between them that led to marriage. There's a very different sexual predilection uh, between someone who is attracted to people who are sexually developed and someone who is attracted to prepubescent minors. It's an entirely different uh, sexual mechanism or sexual psychosexual mechanism, I should say. So I I think that's sort of a red herring that a lot of people have thrown out there. I I imagine something that you were going to say to me certainly before the end of the show, but let's put it out there. That's a red herring. It's apples and oranges.
0: Right. No question. No question. But uh, let's play the other card. Why would she, at 28 you know, take an ad in the column of the New York Daily News and failed this stuff, if at least something didn't happen. You know,
1: I don't know. Um, was it something to do with the Golden Globes? Was it trying to get in the spotlight? I don't know. And, you know, as you and I sit here and, and talk this evening, something may very well have happened to her. Neither of us are qualified to make that assessment. Neither of us are qualified uh, to convict him legally. So, Right. I, I don't know, and I can't answer that. Um, but at the same time, you've got to look at, at the big picture as to what possible motivations are before you simply just skewer someone um, and label them as a child molester. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a very difficult thing to analyze. Perhaps you could get her on your show next week. Uh, that, that would be fantastic. And you can ask her that yeah. very question yourself.
0: Yeah, and uh, I won't say the guy's name, but there was another lawyer that said that that was, quote, very irresponsible of Jim Clemente to say the things he said uh, without having uh, a better picture of the whole situation. Well, Clemente is known to be an advocate, and I don't
1: fault him for taking his position, but all he knows is law enforcement. That's the only side he's been on. I've been on both sides. I've been on the law enforcement side as a prosecutor, and I've been on the other side as a defense attorney, and I'd like to think that I have a more objective assessment. It may not be particularly uh, popular to many people who are listening, and frankly, I'm okay with that, but let's just put it out there and realize the the standard that we're evaluating this situation on. You know, uh, This is a not just a an allegation, but there's got to be a legal determination and frankly, that's where I'm really hung up on this uh before we completely excoriate uh Woody Allen as though he's been tried and convicted already
0: uh Another pedophile uh, they convicted in twenty twelve was a college coach by the name of Jerry Sandusky now uh I can't help but think there was just overwhelming evidence to put him away, what would you take on that case?
1: Uh, Sandusky certainly uh, was a prolific uh, molester. Uh, he used his position of power and authority to groom or uh, cultivate, if you would, uh, his victims. There's no question about his guilt as a jury unanimously found. And again, this is someone who's now been through the system. But if we tie together the allegations from all the different victims, that was probably one of the strongest things that the Sandusky uh, jury relied upon in in finding him guilty. It wasn't just uh, an isolated victim with no physical evidence. There there needs to be more to bring a prosecution forward, and as Jerry Sandusky sits in a Pennsylvania prison cell for the rest of his life,
0: uh, he can certainly uh, attest to that. Yeah, I mean, you had ten people that took the stand. It's hard to say ten people are lying. And you had about 30 others that couldn't testify. You had love letters. You know, there was so much against him, And that's things. the type of confession that I was talking about. It doesn't have to be a confession
1: in a police station under the bright lights, but that was an admission on the part of uh, Sandusky. There was also... Um, people working in the locker room who walked in and saw these sorts of things. You know, you had the assistant coaches. You had other folks who saw this who put Sandusky there. You don't have any of this with Woody Allen. And, you know, again, we're rehashing this 20-some years later. Evidence is not like a fine wine. It doesn't get better with time. (laughs) No, it gets
0: worse. (laughs) Indeed. It certainly does. Uh, but, yeah, the, the other thing with Sandusky, uh, a lot of people felt that the uh, the uh, Joe Papa coach was covering it up. I've re- recently seen some things that this guy put out that there's no way he knew, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I think he knew something was going on. He had to. What do you think?
1: Well, there, there was a whole – Culture at Penn State, and I, I've actually had the opportunity to travel to Penn State. And Joe Paterno sure. was revered as a god. Um, I think also that times have changed. I think sexual abuse uh, has gotten a lot more attention, as it rightly should. Um, victims are being treated like victims. Uh, they aren't being shunned. They aren't made to uh, feel bad or guilty about having been victimized. And offenders are being brought to justice. But with all due respect, when you look at Jerry Sandusky and what could be considered an institutional cover-up, uh, you had a different era. Uh, you had a hierarchy there within Penn State football that lent itself uh, to the cover-up that frankly benefited from the cover-up. Um, Woody Allen, it's a very, very different situation again. Um, yeah i'm not sure I'm not sure it's a fair comparison, but I think it does a good job of highlighting uh what kind of evidence there is for a truly prolific child molester like Jerry Sandusky
0: Yes, and did you catch the girl who uh, called her teacher and put it on YouTube first I was shocked that it was that there was there's women out there that molest and You know, they're almost given a free pass, like you take a look at that case in Florida where that beautiful teacher uh, sodomized uh, a 13-year-old boy uh, in about 2006, I believe it was.
1: Yeah, the literature suggests that women are far less likely to offend, and the recidivism rates are substantially lower after going through treatment. And I can tell you that I have represented women uh, charged with sexual offenses. One in particular uh, I'm thinking of right now uh, was a coach, and it was a very high-profile case. Um, But I think that the incidents are far less. Now, when a victim decides to uh, publicize the abuse that he or she has sustained through social media, YouTube or or publicizes it, you know, it it makes me call into question uh, what the motivations are. Is it for attention? Is there a potential uh, civil action lurking in the balance? Because when you're a victim, it's something that you're ashamed of. People aren't supposed to be victimized. Um, You're taken advantage of in in many different levels.
0: Um, That certainly calls into question the situation. You know, I'm thinking about the the uh, young man and the gorgeous girl. Uh, you know, I think he was 13 or 12. I mean, I I just put myself in the situation and just say, you know, forget about all the legal mumbo jumbo. Uh, you know, I'm a guy, she's a girl, she's hot, and you know, that's how... I don't know. I just I just can't see turning her in personally. You know, I'm just speaking from the and you know. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's one thing to be molested by an old Jerry Sandusky, and it's a different thing to be molested by a 20-year-old teacher. Uh, well, let I'm
1: me ask th- you this question. Let, let, let me let me have a little fun and turn the tables on you a little bit. Forgive me, because it's your show. But consider right the following. Ahead. Okay, you have a 15-year-old girl who is. Uh, sexually molested or involved by a young male teacher we'll say it's a 23 year old student teacher or whatnot okay he's looked upon as a pervert right he took advantage of her but let's say it's a 15 year old male student and it's a 23 year old female student teacher well he's getting high fives in the locker room and he's looked at like a stud it, right. how do you reconcile that paradox in our society and you know, and people can be sitting at home shaking their head and say that's disgusting, but honestly, it's the truth it really is it really is well maybe they maybe maybe you and I just have dirty minds, who knows
0: <laughs> no it's, it is i mean in fact though uh, I think her name is deborah Deborah Lafay. She didn't spend a minute in jail. And, you know, she she had of sex with the boy, you know. If that was a guy, you know, he'd still be in jail right now. Well, and a lot of these situations
1: come down to people who are sexually developed, and that was the point I made uh, a little bit earlier. Um uh, what Correct, correct. And, um, you know, when you have a teacher and a student and they're sexually developed, it takes away the whole aspect of pedophilia, and it becomes more of a boundary issue. But like I said, when it's a female teacher, um, it's, not viewed upon, it's not viewed as severely. And I've even heard cases and been consulted on cases where uh, the, student, the female student teacher uh, is seen to be victimized by the raging hormones of the 15-year-old boy who seduced her. So... I, I don't think we have any really clear standards, but again, it's very, very different than when we're dealing with a child uh, who's seven years old, completely uh, incapable of consent, and uh, someone who, who's truly victimized uh, by a person in a position of authority.
0: Okay, I want to touch on Philip uh, Seymour Hoffman, but I just want to play this real, this cut, real quick, and we'll come back on the other side and we'll talk about Philip.
4: The tragic death of actor Philip Seymour Hoffman, a performer who was known for his extraordinary range. He was also known for his honesty about the struggles he faced away from the public eye. Tonight, investigators at his home after what they believe was a heroin overdose. Just last November, seen smiling at the opening of the second Hunger Games movie, he was just preparing now to film the third installment. And just two weeks ago, this image from Sundance with the cast from his newest movie. Many of you will remember the emotional Hoffman the night he won the Oscar for Best Actor for his role in Capote, singling out his mother. But tonight in New York City's West Village neighborhood where his body was discovered in his bathroom, there is heartbreak over the actor lost, the father lost too. And ABC's lindy Janice is right there tonight. Lindsay, good evening.
2: David, Philip Seymour Hoffman was found dead alone at his apartment here in New York's West Village. Police have been investigating the scene all day. We recently saw... One detective come out with a bag of what looked like evidence. We're told Hoffman was found by screenwriter David Katz and another friend. Police say they responded to a 911 call from those friends at 11.36 this morning. When they arrived, 46-year-old Hoffman was unresponsive, lying on the bathroom floor. A law enforcement official telling ABC News a syringe still in Hoffman's arm and there were bags of what's believed to be heroin at the scene. Officials say they're still investigating what happened, and the medical examiner's office will determine the exact cause of death. In May of last year, Hoffman admitted he recently spent 10 days in rehab for drug abuse, including heroin. The Oscar winner opened about a drug problem in his early 20s, saying he kicked the habit for 23 years. In a 2006 interview, telling CBS's 60 Minutes, he began to fear for his life.
4: He had panicked. He had panicked. It was, um... I was 22 and I got panicked for my life.
0: It really was. It was just that.
2: Hoffman leaves behind his girlfriend of 14 years, theater director and costume designer Mimi O'Donnell and their three children. The family tonight releasing this statement. We are devastated by the loss of our beloved Phil and appreciate the outpouring of love and support we have received from everyone. The actor led a low-key life off-screen, often seen strolling through his beloved West Village neighborhood. Just a regular dad. But the shocking news now sparking an outpouring of grief online. Kevin Bacon tweeting, Oh, what terrible news. What a talent. What a shame. Jim Carrey tweeting, Dear Philip, a beautiful, beautiful soul. For the most sensitive among us, the noise can be too much. Bless your heart. David, the world's media is gathered here outside of Hoffman's home. Well-wishers have been coming by, dropping off flowers. The body has now been removed. The medical examiner will now decide what the exact cause of death was. We should get that information tomorrow. But again, police believe this was a heroin overdose. David?
4: All right, Lindsay Janice reporting in tonight. Lindsay, thank you.
0: Okay, uh Jason, uh before we get into other things of the uh Philip Seymour uh, situation, well, what is your take on the whole situation?
1: Well, one of the things that, that I pointed out on Twitter when this whole tragic incident came to light. You know, I, I tweeted all untimely deaths are tragic. We revere the work like of celebrities. Twitter?
3: Sorry. Would you like
1: to would you like to go ahead and plug your Twitter? Sure, if you wanna Banter with me. Follow me. Don't send me any hate mail. I've had enough of that this week. You can find me at PHX Criminal Att'y. That's PHX Criminal Att'y. And I wrote, we revere the work of celebrities like Philip Seymour Hoffman. Non-celebrities, we call junkies. And we have a terrible epidemic with drugs in this country, but in particular heroin. And Philip Seymour Hoffman was proof that. Um, hardcore drugs like heroin have no socioeconomic boundaries. Right. And I went on to say, you know, in the, in the days following that, when a non-celebrity dies of an overdose, no one arrests his dealer, let alone gives a damn about him.
0: Right. And
1: good point. How, how many how many 18-year-old kids have already died this month of drug overdoses? <laughs> this week. This week. <laughs> Exactly. And we don't see the dealers being rapidly sought after by the police. Now, was this an effort by the NYPD to garner media attention, to do a positive spin on the situation? Is it a situation that it's just a really bad batch of heroin? There was some uh, uh, dope going around for a while that had fentanyl in it, a very, very powerful drug. Um, And and that could be the case in all candor because Philip Seymour Hoffman was found with a syringe sticking out of his arm. So the inference to be drawn is he got a bad drug and, you know, he died instantly. Um, So there's a lot to be said there on a broader societal picture. And, and yes, this is a very tragic death of someone who had uh, great accomplishments. You heard a lot of celebrities uh, mourning his loss and, and his accomplishments and accolades. But rest assured, behind every other death, whether it's in New York City or in the smallest of towns in Iowa, a drug overdose is tragic, and people are grieving—family, friends, loved ones—they're grieving because the the person in Iowa may not have all sorts of uh, accomplishments in the enter- entertainment industry. It doesn't make that death any less significant.
0: That's a very good point. Now. Uh these guys, four of them, were arrested, but they, uh, the latest is that they're not going to be charged with anything, which is the right call. And, and, again, like I said when we were talking about Woody Allen, just because
1: a police officer has probable cause to make an arrest, um, prosecutors have different standards, um, typically across the country and and in the office that I was in here in Phoenix, you have to have a reasonable likelihood of conviction that if you're going to sign your name to a charging document or an authorization to bring charges, you better be ready to try that case because, of course, you've got to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, So, yes, that arrest was made, but it hasn't gone too far with that. Now, that doesn't mean that at a later date, those charges can't be brought up within the the statute of limitations within New York State Uh, but for now at least it appears to be a a knee-jerk reaction to somehow find someone or something uh, accountable for the death
0: of someone whose time came far too soon let me ask you what's your take on marijuana and the legalization of that
1: well A lot of people are going to tell you that marijuana is a a gateway drug. Um, I'm in Arizona, where we have a medical marijuana state, and um, oh, really? You know, everyone knows that we just had the uh, the Super Bowl. I mean, I mean, the Super Bowl in New York between two states, uh, Washington and Colorado, that both have legalized marijuana. Oh. You know, know, but that's not really the issue here so much. Um, You know, marijuana. Um, Yes, you will have law enforcement people and addiction specialists telling you that it will lead to harsher situations. What I have seen in past years uh, is that heroin is becoming more and more popular in the wake of pill addiction becoming more expensive. And and, and let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, Oxycodone, Percocets, uh, opiate drugs are running rampant. Yes. They're all running rampant, but they are very expensive. Um, you know, you can be looking at anywhere between, depending on where you are, the strength, uh, and how good your dealer is, 10 and $30 a pill, and most people can't afford that. And, right. you know, we really don't know with Philip Seymour Hoffman what the progression of his addiction was, but eventually when people can't afford, or I should say many people can't afford uh, these high-dollar pills, they go to heroin. It's more potent. It's uh, It's cheaper. Right, that oftentimes is the path that they take, and
0: it's a very tragic one. Well, definitely, sure is. And you make a, a great point about the heroin; it's much cheaper than you know buying an oxycontin, for example, which I've been told that in New York here it's up to twenty-five, thirty dollars a pill. Sure. And
1: Philip Seymour Hoffman certainly had the means, the financial means. Uh, to sustain a pill habit but it progressed to heroin and oftentimes uh, in urban areas um, you can get uh, drugs delivered to you just as easily as you could get takeout Uh, that may very well have been the case but uh, officers found a tremendous amount uh, of the drug uh, in his residence so that that points to one of two possibilities at least on the surface that he had a tremendous habit and this is what he needed to uh, a mass as his stash, uh, or he basically bought it in bulk and used as he needed so he didn't have to, you know, uh, put himself in harm's way and and draw attention to himself by getting frequent deliveries of the drug.
0: No, no, but uh, they did find an awful lot, you know, uh, in terms of drugs at uh, Philip's house. It was unbelievable the amount he was taking. Right,
1: and, and, and neighbors and friends said that, you know, they saw him, he was uh, very affable, he was involved with his kids, and, and that tells you that, you know, not all addicts, you know, are, are laying in a gutter just jonesing for their next fix. This is, you know, someone who was uh, deeply uh, afflicted by a condition, and it almost sounds that he needed the drug just to maintain that he wasn't even so much getting high, but he was using it to, to level off. Uh, and, unfortunately, past uh, rehab efforts were, were, were not successful uh,
0: in any way. Uh, no, no, and it's a shame. 46 years old, I believe. Terrible. It's terrible. It's terrible. Okay, just a couple of quickies before we let you go. I did have Aphrodite Jones here last week, and we got a flood of uh, mail. Uh, because uh, Aphrodite feels that she is guilty. Uh, Do you have an opinion on the Amanda Knox case? Well, I think a
1: lot of us are outraged by the fact that Amanda Knox's conviction uh, was reinstated. But I think we have a a bit of what I call legal xenophobia in this country. Um, We have the best justice system in the world here. Uh, As much as we we bitch and complain about it in various cases, uh, we we do have the best system. And the Italian system, however, uh, allows an appellate court not just to decide issues of law, as we would here in the United States, but they can also redetermine various facts. Um, I don't think any of us truly know what all of the evidence is. None of us have sat in a courtroom uh, and gone through the reports. But I think that our our cynicism, our skepticism, comes from the fact that we don't understand. I don't understand. I can't wrap my brain around the fact that um, an appellate court um, can redetermine facts that weren't deemed to be erroneous in the first place. So, uh, so I think that brings a lot of angst to people. Uh, will the United sure. States, uh, you know, accommodate an extradition request by an Italian court? If the conviction uh, continues to stand, I don't know. That's going to be quite a political uh, hotbed of sorts for the Obama administration to deal with because uh, certainly we would want uh, in our country to bring back uh, terrorists and other criminals uh, who are abroad and pending charges here in the United States. I mean, just look at Edward Snowden, for example. Um, so I yeah. think that remains to be seen, and there's going to be legal challenges that have to be worked out. Um, but but let me be clear with you that there are many cases here in the United States where a defendant is convicted at trial, uh, an appellate court will reverse the conviction, and a subsequent appellate court will reinstate the original guilty verdict. So the progression is not unprecedented, but it's more the procedure that I think is foreign to us, and it's one that's going to have to play out. But Amanda Knox is, uh, has made pretty clear uh, she intends to stay here unless she's, uh, you know, taken into custody by the U.S. Marshals.
0: But do you think the appellate uh, court works good there in terms of like when she was guilty, she pretty much got a new trial really rather quick. Was that just a case of her? being pretty in amanda knox quote or was that just the case that you know it warranted a uh, another look at it or the outrage well again
1: I I don't think that her looks necessarily have as much of a driving force in in practicality in the legal system uh, as they do in the media I mean that that's a wonderful thing to uh, you know glom onto, but I, I think practically the, the legal mechanism was being followed uh and, and was frankly blind uh to her appearance um, do i think that maybe it got some extra attention because she was an american uh because of the way that the italian media portrayed her as uh the devil and that there was some sort of you know ritual sex game going on um yeah that that could be but i, I think her looks in and of itself um I beg to differ that wasn't necessarily the driving force.
0: And uh, what are the chances of her uh, going back there in your opinion? Well it's going to depend
1: what you know the subsequent appellate decisions are uh, within the Italian court. Uh, Like I said here in this country the appellate courts Uh, be it a state appellate court, a a federal court of appeals, or ultimately the Supreme Court of the United States, they deal with legal issues only. They don't reconcile the facts, and they certainly don't adjudge the facts a second time. Um, Once there is some finality as to her case, then it will be up to the Italian government to make a formal extradition request Uh, to the United States of America, that will have to be fought in the federal courts. And that's a battle that Amanda Knox, her family, and her attorneys are clearly bracing for. Um, And once that's resolved, um, we'll see. Um, You just don't know at this point because there are so many variables. Uh, We would hope, based on what we've seen, that she is acquitted, um, that the acquittal is just, uh, and, and it stands. But if, on the other hand, it's reinstated uh, by the proper process in the Italian justice system and there is a valid Italian order and a valid United States court order for her return,
0: um, she may not have much of a choice. i got to ask you, since you're in the Arizona area, what would you take of Jody Arias' trial, the uh, prosecutor, you know, uh, the... To me, it was uh, a lot of people found it like a uh, soap opera. You know, it's will oh, include uh, myself. <laughs> well,
1: there's no question. Um, you know, as I told you when we started the show, uh, I spent a lot of time on HLN uh, right outside yes. the Phoenix Courthouse um, talking about the Jodi Arias case. So it's one that I'm extremely familiar with. And you're right, it was a soap opera um, because I think this was the unique combination of a... Uh, what some would call uh, an attractive woman, um, gratuitous sex, religion, and uh, violence. And it wasn't just a soap opera that was on for, you know, 30 or 60 minutes a day. This went on every single day, and the way the media uh, covered it, and granted, there was certainly ample fodder to do so, it became a real-life soap opera. And I can tell you that uh, I was sitting uh, on set in the plaza right near the courthouse when the verdict was played over the loudspeakers and we were about to go live and there was a deafening roar of the crowd uh, of elation, of jubilation that this woman was uh, convicted and and you saw uh, the public so uh, empowered and so much a part of this case Uh, and and, and frankly you saw that uh, on social media, you saw that in the ratings, uh, that were absolutely sky high Uh, And it was a very unique beast. And I don't think that any uh, writer or team of gifted, award-winning writers could have put together a script like the one that played out uh, in a Maricopa County courthouse for the trial of Jody Arias.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I once heard Mark Garrigo say that when uh, somebody got convicted that, you know, they were all cheering and this and that. And it's not a time, you know, that... Travis's family, you know, just got justice, and uh, someone might be put to death. What do you what do you think of this idea of people chanting and screaming and like that? Uh, do you think it should be like uh, like the Roman, you know, like a fight, like you know, these cheers, like you're at a wrestling match or something? Well, it was
1: very much like the Roman Colosseum of sorts when, when you saw this right. very strong court of public opinion, but. You know, Jodi Arias, by getting up on the stand for 18 days, I believe it was, and mm-hmm. coming up with so many different stories, first that she exactly. wasn't there, then it was the armed intruders, and then in self-defense, um, you know, she created a lot of the uh, hatred uh, that the public had toward her, toward her. Now, granted, it was broadcast. Um, and And there was a lot to talk about, and I will tell you that I had a lot to talk about, even as a defense attorney um, with the manner and means uh, which she and the defense case was presented. And I think there would have been uh, infinite possibilities that could have been utilized that would have resulted probably in a uh, a different and perhaps a better outcome. But really, s was driving that train, and she was intent in her own narcissistic, self-serving way to garner all the attention she could. And at the end of the day, she drove that train right off a cliff. And right now, it's kind of hanging off that cliff and, you know, may just be
0: uh, landing right in death row. What was your take on Juan Martinez? A lot of people thought he was uh, a little over the edge. What's yeah, your I, on Martinez? You know, I've known Juan... Um,
1: since I started at the Maricopa County Attorney's Office in 1998. uh, Juan is an excellent lawyer. Um, Juan in the courtroom is different than Juan out of the courtroom. Um, He's a nice guy and and I want to come out and and there's no question during you know the the many months of coverage you know that I gave him some heat based on some things but you know um, that's by no means personal. Juan is a fine lawyer, but he's a very flamboyant and animated uh, lawyer, and he's extremely intelligent. He had a mastery uh, of this case like few others could with the mountains and mountains of evidence and uh, the witnesses he had to keep straight. And Let's remember, a lot of people uh, will tag team on trials. Uh, I, for one just finished a five week homicide trial last week. Wow. And I had co-counsel handling one of the experts, uh, you know, and some ancillary issues related to it. And, and let me tell you something, that was just a huge burden off my back to have someone deal with that small portion of expert testimony. And I was absolutely exhausted at the end of this trial, but magnify that now, you know, out to several months, more witnesses, um, and you know a, a lot of intensity, and, and that's a lot for one person to take on. I was working between 15 and 19 hours a day and utterly exhausted. You know Juan Martinez, uh, God bless him, is like a machine in trial. Um, you right. can you know criticize his present, criticize his presentation and, and style, but you do have to respect the hard work, effort, commitment, and passion that he put into the prosecution of Jody Arias. In which I suspect you will see more.
0: Uh, of the same of when the penalty phase starts up in mid March. Yeah, that's the other part I just wanted to ask you. Do you think it was uh, smarter? Well, the, would you have went for the uh, penalty phase uh, since the first one, uh, you know, was uh, they all couldn't agree on it? Well, the prosecution um, alleged the
1: death penalty because they thought it was appropriate. And the aggravating circumstances have been proven. And, and let me just back up uh, procedurally so we understand that there's three phases in which the prosecution needs to prevail to get to a death sentence. And the first is, of course, is guilt or innocence. And Jody Arias has been convicted beyond a reasonable doubt by a unanimous jury. The next is the uh, finding of aggravating circumstances, And in this case, that it, there needs to be at least one, and there was a cruel and uh, heinous uh, manner in which the homicide was perpetrated. Once okay. the aggravating circumstance or circumstances are found, and they have been, Jodi Arias becomes eligible for the death penalty. And in that third and final phase, uh, the jury would have to find unanimously that death is the appropriate outcome. And in, and in last year's trial, it was 8 to 4 uh, in favor right. of death. So right. what we're going to see is not a retrial of the first or fe- second phases, but only the third phase. But you've got to realize that there's going to be almost a mini-trial because this is an all-new jury. Okay? Right. 12 people who presumably were living under a rock in most of 2013 and know nothing about J- Jodi Arias... These people are going to have to be educated. They're going to have to see the facts. You know, what makes this cruel and heinous, even though they're not going to have to make that finding to show that Jody Arias deserves to be put to death for the crime that she committed. Right, right. And that's scheduled for March, right? I believe March 17th is when they get started. They're going to have to pick a jury. Uh, the judge has banned live cameras from the courtroom, so it's going to be a little bit of a different animal uh, at this point uh, compared yeah, to last sure. year. There, right? there will be plenty of coverage. I think uh, yeah. America has an appetite and an, and an insatiable appetite for Jodi Arias, uh, and Jodi Arias in her self-centered, narcissistic ways, she's only too happy to, uh, to feed that hunger.
0: Oh, yeah. It's a day out uh, of the jail cell, at least. That's as uh, some would say. But uh, what, what about the uh, defense attorneys, Narmi and... Uh, uh, Jennifer
1: Wilmot, yeah. Jeff- Both, Both Wilmot. are experienced attorneys. They are, they're court-appointed lawyers. Um, notably, their bill has exceeded over $2 million uh, throughout this mm-hmm. case. But, you know... Some would say that's a consideration that the prosecution must bear uh, in bringing a death penalty case in terms of the allocation of resources. Now, the prosecutor, uh, and and not just Juan Martinez, but the elected county attorney, Bill Montgomery, and and, and, and Bill is a really good guy. He's a fair guy, Um, I suspect. If you had him uh, here tonight, he would say... Look, we're not really interested in the cost. We have a responsibility to the community at large uh, to bring justice and to bring justice to Travis Alexander's family, uh, a man who was uh, stabbed uh, 29 times, shot in the head, and had his throat slit. And, you know, we have a duty, a responsibility uh, to put this monster... Uh, not just a way for good, but to put her to death. This is what you put us here to do as prosecutors. Let us do our jobs.
0: Yeah, I mean, if any crime deserves it, you know, and I'm not really for the death penalty, but if any crime deserves it, it would would have to be this one.
1: Well, let's just say if Jody Arias ends up on death row, she has certainly earned her ticket.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Okay, before we go, uh, you want to plug your website and your Twitter again?
1: Sure. You can find me on Twitter. Um, It's PHXCriminalATTY, and my website is ThePhoenixCriminalAttorney.com. Like I told you, I do complex criminal defense work. I don't just practice here in Arizona. I do travel around the United States for complex uh, federal cases. And uh, let me say it's been a pleasure joining you tonight, and I hope we oh. have the opportunity uh, to do it again.
0: Oh, we should. I hope so. Uh, you were excellent. Thanks for all the well, input. I appreciate that. Yep. And uh, uh hope to be speaking to you soon and uh, definitely uh, come back on, and uh, I'm sure the listeners agree with me. Uh, uh, you were great tonight. So uh, thanks again.
1: Well, I appreciate it. You have a good night as well. Okay, Jason, we'll talk to you soon.
0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was Jason Lamb. He is a legal analyst. Just a few reminders. Tomorrow at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we will have Dominic Palante on along with JJ and Blackjack, and we'll be covering WWE The Network. That will be our uh, topic tomorrow. We will also uh, talk about Raw, what happened. Uh, I know Rose from the Golden Girls is on it, uh, so we'll have to make mention of that. So uh, take a look at And Wednesday, we will discuss the gay athlete that came out of the closet at 9 o'clock with the Mighty Quinn. Uh, Michael Sam will be on King Jordan Radio. And just a reminder, follow us on Twitter at Mr. King Jordan and uh, stay with us on uh, Facebook. We have now the group page uh, King Jordan Radio uh, and friends. You could check it out. And uh, Facebook.com forward slash King Jordan Radio. Tomorrow night, ladies and gentlemen, at 8 p.m., don't forget a wrestling talk with Dominic Valente, Blackjack Brown, JJ, and myself. It should be fun. We'll speak to you tomorrow, ladies and gentlemen, and thanks for listening to King Jordan Radio, your source for WWE sports and news.